During VBS this year, I was up front one evening with Reverend Will Waller and Tammy Burdick from the United Methodist Church here in town, and she was introducing us in case anyone wanted to talk to us about their faith or had any questions. And so I stood there for a moment, and then I realized that I felt uncomfortable because I was pretty much the shortest one up there. Pastor Will is taller than I am, and and Tammy is rather tall herself. And so I immediately just, without even thinking, I impulsively jumped up right there on that little platform. There was, if you've ever been in the Methodist church here in town, you know what I'm talking about. There's a railing up front, right in front of the pulpit and the chancel. And it has a little, uh, a little area where you can stand or sit or kneel. And it has a cushion on it. And I, I stood on it so that I would be taller than them. But it, it didn't take me much longer than that to realize that I really should get down. I remembered very quickly I grew up in the Methodist Church. For 20 years I grew up in the Methodist Church and I remembered that this is where the Methodist people take communion once a quarter, once a month, or, or whatever it is that they do. And so I didn't want to be committing sacrilege in the, in the Methodist church here in town and be fussed at. So I jumped down. And as soon as I did, I also remembered something that I learned in seminary. That many years ago, a lot of churches had such an area in their church. And these churches, especially in Methodist churches, were called the Anxious Bench. And this was a place where several things would happen, but probably most interesting to me was this is where repentant sinners would come to ask for forgiveness for living sinful lives or for turning away from their faith, for backsliding, as we often like to call it. And I remember for a long time thinking, well, thank God I don't need the anxious bench. But as I sat there and thought about it during VBS that night, you know, I probably need the anxious bench more than I like to admit or more than I even realize. That there are many, many days and weeks in which I simply do not trust in God enough. I turn away from God I do things that I want to do instead of the things that God wants me to do. That I do not live life as Christ lived, but I live life as Matthew wants to live. I think if we're honest, we all backslide quite frequently. We make a commitment to be a certain way and to live a certain life, to be like Christ, but within a few minutes or hours or days or weeks or whatever, we eventually make mistakes. That's just the human condition. And that's what today's song, Wedding Dress, is all about. For a few weeks, Seth and I are teaming up and doing sermons together. He's going to play songs that have been important to my Christian life and, and to me growing as an individual. And I'm going to talk about them and how they relate to maybe you and, and, and your faith. And so 
if you were in church right now, you'd be hearing Seth play the song, but instead I'm going to read some of the lyrics to you. And in the opening it says, If you could love me as a wife, for my wedding gift your life, should that be all I ever need? Is there more I'm looking for? Should I read between the lines, look for blessings in the skies? Make me handsome, rich, and white. Is that really what you want? Because I am a whore, I do confess. I put you on just like a wedding dress. And I run down the aisle, run down the aisle. I'm a prodigal with no way home. I put you on just like a ring of gold. And I run down the aisle, run down the aisle to you. That song has it exactly right. If you use the imagery of a wedding, we often put on Christ like a wedding dress and we run down the aisle to him, excited in our faith and in our commitment, but then we soon slip away, giving up on him and being much more interested in whatever it is we have going on. Ezekiel was dealing with those same problems and those same kind of people when he was alive 2,600 years ago. This is what Ezekiel 16, 1 through 16 says in the message translation. So God's message came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her outrageous violations. Say this, the message of God, the master to Jerusalem. You were born and bred among Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You weren't bathed and cleaned up. You weren't rubbed with salt. You weren't wrapped in a baby blanket. No one cared a fig for you. No one did one thing to care for you tenderly in these ways. You were thrown out into a vacant lot and left there. Dirty and unwashed, a newborn nobody wanted. And then I came by. I saw you all miserable and bloody. Yes, I said to you, lying there helpless and filthy. Live, grow up like a plant in the field. And you did. You grew up. You grew tall and matured as a woman, full-breasted with flowing hair. But you were naked and vulnerable, fragile and exposed. I came by again and saw you, saw that you were ready for love and a lover. I took care of you, dressed you, and protected you. I promised you my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the Master, gave my word. You became mine. I gave you a good bath, washing off all that old blood, and anointed you with aromatic oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry. I placed bracelets on your wrist. I fitted you with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, and a diamond tiara. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful with exquisite clothes and elegant food, garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning. 
You were a queen. You became world famous, a legendary beauty brought to perfection by my adornments. Decree of God the Master. But your beauty went to your head and you became a common whore, grabbing anyone coming down the street and taking him into your bed. You took your fine dresses and made tents of them, using them as brothels in which you practiced your trade. This kind of thing should never happen. Never. Ezekiel was a prophet when the Israelites were carried off into exile to Ab Babylon. Babylon came in and took over and carried the people off. And only the best and the brightest and the richest and the most well-to-do were taken off. All the, the common people, the, the sick, the lame, the poor, were left behind. They didn't want the riffraff back home in Babylon. And as far as I know, ba Babylon took Ezekiel also. And people wanted to know from Ezekiel as a prophet, why did God allow this? If God loves us and if we were God's chosen people, why would God allow this? And Ezekiel said, I'll tell you why. God picked us up right where we were many, many years ago when we had no one, when we were not the chosen people. And God loved us and brought us to life. And, and Ezekiel used the marriage imagery. He said, God entered into the marriage with us. But we cheated. Just like a common whore. We ran down the aisle, and then we cheated. He said, you found things that were more important to you than God. Other gods, other things. This is why you're in the predicament that you're in. This is the same thing that has happened again and again throughout the Old Testament prophets. Read them over again and over again, and this is what happens. And this is what Jesus confronts too and what happens to us now. If you read in John chapter 6, 64 through 69, Jesus said this, it says, Jesus sensed that his disciples were having a hard time with this and said, Does this rattle you completely? What would happen if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he came from? The Spirit can make life. Sheer muscle and willpower don't make anything happen. Every word I've spoken to you is a spirit word, and so it is life-making. But some of you are resisting, refusing to have any part in this. Jesus knew from the start that some weren't going to risk themselves with him. He knew also who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you earlier that no one is capable of coming to me on his own. You get to me only as a gift from the Father. After this, many of the disciples left. They no longer wanted to be associated with them. Then Jesus gave the twelve their chance. Do you also want to leave? Peter replied, Master, to whom would we go? You have the words of real life, eternal life, 
we've already committed ourselves confident that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus knew from experience that people would not always stick by his side, even people who claimed to. He knew from the very beginning that some of them would betray him, and then he knew who they were. And so he offered them their chance then and there to leave. He looked at his most intimate followers. He said, do you all want to give up? He said, it's not going to be easy. It's going to get rough. Do you want to give up now? Just turn back and go back? And I love Peter's tenacity. He said, Master, to whom would we go? Do you have the words of real life? Where else would we turn to? That's the kind of faith that we should have. Granted, Peter had problems and he struggled with it. And we will too. But that's the way we should live our lives. Where else are we going to turn? In the end, Christ has the real words of life. We should be turning to Him. So that's my challenge to you. Commit yourselves to your faith. Absolutely, completely, thoroughly. You'll make mistakes, you'll fall back, you'll backslide occasionally, we all do. But that's what that anxious bench is figuratively or literally there for. It's for us to come back. Christ made room for us to always come back. That's what grace is for. And so there are some things you can do to make sure that you don't have to end up doing this. And one of the things I encourage you to do is set your priorities. It's one thing to, first thing is to, is to set your priorities and then keep them. But figure out what matters to you. Some people say, you know, this, this part of my faith just isn't that important to me. I don't see it and I, I just don't feel it. I don't believe it. Well, that's up to you. You've got to figure that out. I might be able to tell you what I think is important and what your priorities should be, but you ultimately have to figure that out. That's between you and God. And then once you figure out what your priorities are, keep them. And one of the ways that you can keep your priorities is by having someone to keep you accountable. And I have that. I have people who keep me accountable. I have friends who keep me accountable to, to my work, to my ministry, to who I'm called to be and what God's asking me to do. I know that if I live and act and do certain things, that they will keep me accountable for it. I have a ministry coach, a clergy coach, who keeps me accountable. We set goals every month of what I'm going to do, and if I don't do them, no matter what, he asks me if I've done them, at the next meeting. We all need that. We need small groups that will keep us accountable. Not just ones that will say hi to us and make us feel good about ourselves, 
the ones that will ask us how we're doing living out our Christian faith. And practice your spiritual disciplines. These are the same things that I've been telling you about for a very long time. Be in worship. You know, I know this sounds very old-fashioned, possibly. But when I grew up and where I grew up, church was important. You didn't just go to church whenever you felt like it. You made a point of going. You only missed church for two reasons. If you were sick, and I mean like 110 fever, or on vacation, and you only went on vacation once a year. So that meant you missed church about twice a year. Otherwise, you were at church. And not just to get it checked off or to earn, a, earn another gold star from, from, the, from the Sunday school lady, but so that you could be in worship, loving God. Worship. And be learning about your faith. Always be learning in small groups, reading books, studying, reading scripture, in fellowship. Be with one another. I know that not everyone can be at church. That's not always possible. Sometimes we have to work. Sometimes travel is necessary. Sometimes we are homebound. But if at all possible, be in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It will strengthen you for your walk. And these people will help keep you going back. They will help keep you accountable. And they will encourage you in your Christian faith. And share in your faith. And serve others. So do these things. Practice your spiritual disciplines of worship, evangelism, fellowship, education, and service. Be engaged in all of these things regularly and be committed to them. Let this be things that are important to you. You know, they say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. If that is true, my road must be at least six feet thick. I've had all kinds of good intentions in my life, especially when it comes to my faith. However, I believe that what God is encouraging us to do, what, what the Bible is challenging us to do, what Jesus is asking for out of us, calling for even, is that we be committed followers of His. And we can do that. I want us to make commitments that we're not going to keep. It's all too easy for us to put Christ on like a wedding dress and to run down the aisle and then to turn away from him. Let us enter into this marriage covenant with Christ. Whole, ready, and committed. Amen.